Hi there, my name is Jake Reiner, and welcome to Meeting on the Mound. We are now joined by a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway, because maybe there are a few people out there who'd like to hear it. He's an actor, director, comedian, writer, and producer. He starred in such films as The Princess Bride, Analyze This, Throw Mama from the Train, City Slickers, and When Harry Met Sally. He's also hosted the Academy Awards nine times, second only to Bob Hope, which I had to look that up. That was actually pretty impressive. <laughs> and he's won multiple primetime Emmys for his appearances on the Oscars. And finally, for the purposes of this podcast, he is a diehard New York Yankees fan. And we're talking about Billy Crystal. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jake. A pleasure to be here. Boy, I sound very impressive. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was amazed to look up and see all the things you'd done. Me too, sometimes. <laughs> it's good to be reminded of it now and again. Yeah. So yeah. Um, before we get into your um, Yankees allegiance, I wanted to first kind of talk to you about this pandemic season we've seen in 2020. A shortened season, only 60 games. Um, you've got no fans in the stands. And depending on when you're listening to this podcast, unfortunately, the Yankees uh, got knocked out in the ALDS in 2020. So they are not in the playoffs at the present moment. But just I would like to hear some of your thoughts on what it's been like watching this season. It's been, well, it, it's been just a gruesome world to live in. And so for me, baseball has always been the thing that just was, I counted on. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a welcome sight just to watch the actual playing, but the bizarreness of empty stadiums and cutouts. And, you know, I, I remember when it was early in the season and the Yankees were playing the Mets and the Mets were gruesome and the, the cutouts actually left early to, to beat the traffic. <laughs> And you want what is going on? But at least we have the sport, Jake. At least we have it, and the the level of competition has been has been really strong. But you know, piped in music and and plastic cutouts is just it's such a reminder of the of the horribleness of this world right now. But you know, like that great speech that James Earl Jones makes in in um, in Field of Dreams, there was always baseball, baseball. <laughs> You know, World War II, there was baseball. So we, at least we have it, you know, and I think the success of the NBA and the bubble was fantastic. Um, but there's nothing, there's really to me, uh, since I was a little kid, nothing like being able to go to a game and, and smell all the things you're supposed to smell and, 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 and see the, all the cliches, the green grass, the, you know, the, the, and the, these great young guys playing, playing the sport that we all love, you know, so at least we have it, but it is bizarre. It is bizarre. Yeah. I'm with you on that. At least we have it. I have enjoyed watching the games. And like you mentioned before we started, you don't remember a time when there wasn't a pandemic. And it's weird when they show flashbacks of fans in the stands. It almost takes you a minute to, <laughs> to think it? about. I know. Like, it's a strange. This was actually a thing. Oh, people used to come. Yeah. Oh, they didn't just build these empty, huge stadiums for nobody. Oh, I know. It's, it's just weird. Odd. Yeah, when they show the uh, like the the Goodyear blimp shot, it looks like they're just you know doing a scrimmage or practicing. Yeah. But, um. Yeah. It's it's weird. It's like it, we, we've we've gotten so far into it that sometimes while you're watching, you don't even realize 
that there aren't any fans there. You're just you're so glued into what's going on. Do you yeah, find and, that and as well? What, what, what it has given us, though, I think, is some better camera angles um, because they're avoiding the stands. So Completely. they get tighter. I know the Yankee games, there were some really cool shots from behind home plate where you never saw that 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 um, kind of angle before. So that's been kind of cool. So you focus on on the work and and the plus side and, and some of the tense moments, they don't cut to some fan in the stands, you know, who, why are they going to him for? <laughs> you know, and it's always, you know, it's the pitcher looking in, the batter's gripping the ball tight, and then there's some guy in the stands, and no, I don't want that. Give me, you know, so it's, on the plus side, that I think that's been, that's been pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that is missing is like when Vince Scully used to call games, one of his things that he loved to do was was narrate what like a little child was doing and kind of get into the the head of what they're thinking, eating cotton candy or sleeping on their parents. So you're kind of missing that that aspect of it. And well, I know I'm this year missing Vinny. I mean, oh, yeah. We're, I, I mean, we he was a, he was a poet, you know, and um, you do you do miss that. I mean, it is a it is a people's game. And uh, of course, but like I said before, at least we, uh, we get a chance to watch something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we know that there, you mentioned cardboard cutouts. Do you have one anywhere at any stadium or would you ever put yourself as a cardboard cutout? In Yankee no, stadium I wouldn't, you, I wouldn't, you know, the, 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 when the Clippers are in the playoffs and, um, you know, they're my basketball version of the Yankees. Uh, they wanted me to be a virtual person. And I said, no, I, I <laughs> no. I don't blame you. It looks weird. It looked weird. It just looked like tropical fish. And (laughs) and, uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't do that. So we kind of touched on it. You are a huge Yankees fan and you grew up in Long Beach, Long Island, New York. Um, You played both baseball and basketball. And I I recently rewatched 700 Sundays and you talked about how you went to uh, Marshall University on a baseball scholarship, but didn't end up playing because they got rid of the program there. And then you also played basketball in high school. So which sport did you favor and why? Well, I was was a baseball guy. my dad was a, a good pitcher. I, I was fortunate to have two older brothers who were really terrific baseball players. So we had each other to play with, you know. And on Sundays, uh, which I show in uh, a piece in, a, in the play called uh, Curveballs in the Snow, my dad would take us out to the high school field and, and try to teach us how to hit the curveball, which he had a really good one. Um, but it was always baseball. The thing about basketball, you know, um, I was five, five, five. Six. I didn't have a spurt till till college to get me to five seven, and um, that was really more exciting because the whole town was a small little town. The whole town would come out on Friday nights to watch the basketball game, so it was like the town's game. It was almost a, a Jewish version of Hoosiers, <laughs> and uh, so that was great. And uh, but and it was v- always really cold. In, in late March and April, and the school was right on a bay, so it was like candlestick. Mm. But there was something about when you hit one well and you, and you played well, it, it, it was, that was really what I should have been doing all along. You know, I, I've always said that I think there's a few things that I do, I do pretty well uh, in my life. Um, I, can, I can act. I can do stand-up. 
and I really love to field ground balls. And I'm 72 now, and I still do that every day. I have I have this uh, system that that I get ground balls every day, and and it's part of my workout. And I use a a tennis ball machine that that throws me uh, infield practice around a tennis court, and then uh, I still love I still love to break in a glove every spring. I just like to get a new glove and break it in, and then <clears throat> some I auction them off. Uh, to needy charities. Uh, so, uh, you know, I always, I always loved the game. And the reason was, you know, again, my brothers having guys to play with. But when I grew up, you know, we had amazing teams in New York. We had three professional teams. We had the Yankees, of course, the New York Giants, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. So you had a, you had a combination of players of Mano, Jackie Robinson, Yogi Berra, the late Whitey Ford, um, uh, Willie Mays, uh, Monty Irvin, all of these amazing players, you know. So, and from the time that I was aware of the Yankees, just think about, in the, they were in a World Series, 1950, 1951, 1952, 1953, 1955, 1956, 1958, and then back again in 1960, 61. We get it. They're good. Yeah. But so, so you had, you had that, you know, you had Octobers that meant um, no school because of Jewish holidays. So you can watch the world series. And so that, I mean, it was a great time to, to um, be nurtured on, on really good baseball. Yeah. And I'm almost curious because you mentioned your dad throwing you batting practice in the summers and the winter, and he would have a wicked curveball. Was it, was it him that sort of introduced you to the game? And then what do you think about baseball has sort of kept you interested all these years later? Well, he definitely started us on the game. Um, my dad was in the music business. Um, I used to produce jazz concerts in our family business with a little record store. And so Louis Armstrong, um, the great Louis Armstrong became um, a friend of his and a friend of the family. And so our first game, May 30th, 1956, this is before the Memorial Day weekends. Memorial Day was on a Thursday. So he took off work and took us to our first game. Um, I was eight years old. I talk about it in the play. Mantle hits his home run off the facade of the original Yankee Stadium, not the renovated one from 74 and definitely not the one now. Um, and he was Elvis in pinstripes. I mean, it was, he was so extraordinary, but on your first game to, to have good seats and to hear that, I remember hearing the home run and then that ball going so far. I mean, and then that was it. And then every game was televised. So when you couldn't get there, um, you could watch and then listen to the great announcers that they had, Mel Allen, Red Barber, um, they, were, they were phenomenal announcers. And uh, so that really uh, introduced us to that. And I remember going to old-timers games um, at Yankee Stadium, and we'd be in Louis Armstrong's seats right behind, um, between third base and home plate on the visitor's side. And we'd see Joe DiMaggio um, only five years out of uh, – his career ending six, maybe gliding across still in uniform when he was introduced. And my dad would go, that was my guy. That was my guy. 
and then seeing, I saw Ty Cobb um, sitting right near us, and it was a, in a July 4th doubleheader, when they played doubleheaders, in a three-piece wool suit with a big floppy hat. I mean, so the, there was all of that mystique about it. We always watched the games, and he encouraged us to watch the games. And, and again, um, my brothers and I, uh, you know, we were our own playmates. I didn't need much else besides those two guys. Yeah. And you talked about Elvis as, I mean, Elvis, <laughs> I said, you said Elvis, but you talk about Mantle being Elvis and pinstripes. Yeah. And it sort of gives him this, this larger than life feel. And I know that he was that type of player for yeah. people that watched him growing up. He was attractive, charismatic. He was a, just a true Yankee through and through um, year after year producing, even on a broken down body, he could, you know, barely stay healthy and still hit 40 homers, which is just insane yeah um but above all that what what drew you to him to sort of say that he was your hero he was your favorite player and then later on in life you ended up you know developing a, a friendship and a relationship with him well he was he was that great you know he was that great he was 25 years old uh, at the time when i first saw him he was so good he was mike trout from both sides of the plate um same kind of makeup speed um, could run, catch all the tools, and he had about three other tools. Um, and so he had this great charisma about him. And on a team that also had Yogi Berra and Bill Scourin and and um, uh, Phil Rizzuto for a little bit, and Tony Kubek, uh, and then Maris, of course, uh, he was the guy. He just there was something about him, Jake, that was at the same time that he was magnificent. He also you know, he was hurt so much and you knew he was playing in pain. So there's something magnificent about him at the same time. Um, and of course, we didn't know about, you know, his drinking problem. Uh, that, that happened later. But there was a frailty about him that was, that made him even more appealing. And, and there was this excitement that would just build from the time he would walk from the on-deck circle towards the plate. And you'd hear Bob Shepard the center fielder, number seven, Mickey Mantle. And who had a better name than Mickey Mantle as a oh. player? You know, it's like, perp. and with those bulging forearms, he wasn't a big guy. You know, he was 5'10", 200 pounds. But the neck started like around his forehead <laughs> and went to his shoulders like he had a cape on. And um, he just was, he was really America. It was a Cold War um, time period. And it was, you know, post-World War II, post-Korea. He was like the perfect guy, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed. He was like as American as, as we needed him at that time, you know? Yeah. I, looking back on, on the, <clears throat> you were talking about the comparison between him and Mike Trout. Mike Trout also has a neck that begins at his forehead and goes to about his lower back. So yeah, I mean, my, but Mike, Mike Trout weighs 240. Yeah. You know, he's huge. He's a linebacker. He's gigantic. Mickey was normal size. And still to this day, nobody hits the ball further than Mickey Mantle did. And I think that a lot of people are drawn, and I've had this conversation with my dad a bunch, where you, you, you're you drawn to baseball be, in a lot of ways because the players are kind of just like you in some ways. They're, they're fat, they're short, they're tiny, they're fast, they're 
you know, you know, tall. I mean, they're every shape and size is in baseball. Football, you got, you know, these brute guys. Monsters. In Monsters. basketball, you've got these tall, taller than life guys. In baseball, there's like this everyday sense about these players. And even though, you know, Mickey Mantle was, you know, this sort of attractive American, you know, this sort of everyday man, he he had this like, you know, this kind of this 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 aspect about him that was just like you you could get to know this guy you could have a beer with this guy and i think that that that's kind of what draws people to to baseball cuz they see themselves on the field almost there is a there is an element of um uh of that for sure um there are exceptions the Aaron judges of the world and most of the tampa bay relief squad these guys <laughs> 6 8 6 10 I mean, it's like 102 miles an hour. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But Mickey was, uh, he had that aw shucks thing about him. Um, As great as he was, uh, there was a a little kid about him too that I think was very relatable to to this little kid for sure. Yeah. Um, So I kind of want to transition into talking about uh, 61, the movie Mm -hmm. you directed that sort of looked at the mantle and maris home run chase of of 1961 and hearing you talk about mickey mantle made me think about 61 because that story wasn't really about mickey mantle it was more about roger maris and and we kind of we kind of felt for roger maris and we followed him most of the movie and i was just kind of curious as to why you wanted to pick that story to do involving mickey mantle well it was really their story um, Roger broke the record, so that makes it his story. Um, but it was their relationship, how two guys on the same team chasing a ghost um, were teammates, competitors, and later became great friends. That was, that was the story. Mantle had told me so many stories about them living together um, when they moved into this apartment in Queens together. Um, and... Uh, when I got the script and HBO asked me to direct the movie, I just, I put in all of these things that Mickey had told me to make it more personal. Even if the, if a joke was rough, it, it, it actually came out of his mouth. So I had to tell the story the, the right way and, um, and, and what's it all. And uh, I think he would not have forgiven me if I, if I, you know, had, had uh, fancied it up a little bit, you know? But it, the two actors were extraordinary. The story was extraordinary. Um, and I was, I was 13 that summer. And I was, like, I was like Rain Man when we came to set design. And, you know, I, I'm looking at a seat over here that I, that, um, I have from the original, original Yankee Stadium um, that Mickey signed to me uh, that says, Billy, wish you were still sitting here and I was still playing. <laughs> that was in 1991. And um, there's a chip of paint. The seat is painted blue, but there's a little green underneath it. And when we were researching, I gave the colors to our set designer, Rusty Smith, who did an amazing job. Um, I said, this was, the, this was the color. You know, this, was, this is the real thing. And so we turned Tiger Stadium in Detroit, which is, was then abandoned because um, they moved in Com- into uh, Comerica, into Yankee Stadium of of 1961 with the monuments and the whole deal. And, uh, that was it. But, uh, the story was, I think what people liked about the movie and, um, 
was the fact that it wasn't just a baseball movie. Um, that was the, the canvas. But the story really was about these two men and um, earning each other's respect. Yeah. When you, because obviously you followed the home run race when it was, when it was occurring in 1960. Oh, my God. I assume you were rooting for Mantle. I was, but, you know, but um, it was so insane because they're playing in the same park that Ruth played in. Maris is playing right field where Babe Ruth played, you know, and, and then Mickey gets hurt right around Labor Day and he, he, he pulls a tendon in his forearm and he, he, they don't think he can play and then he gets up and he hits a home run one-handed, basically. I mean, there's Paul Bunyan kind of stuff that we – that we amplified and showed in the movie. But that summer was beyond belief in New York. And if you, what, what's really astounding, this, the uh, pennant wasn't decided until right after Labor Day. Um, the Yankees were one game up on the Tigers at Labor Day, and then they sweep them, and then went on like a 14 or 15 game winning streak and put it away. But, so it wasn't really decided until September. The Yankees, only drew a million and a half people that season in a stadium that sat 72,000 people on the, on the day that Maris uh, broke the record. There were, you know, only 5,000 people in the stands. That's what stood out to me the most rewatching the movie was that I was, I was shocked to, to, to learn that. I mean, I know that they didn't want Maris to break the record because he wasn't a true Yankee. Yeah. And Mickey Mantle had been there. Yeah. Far longer. That was Maris's second season with the Yankees. Yeah, and he Maris had kind of tripped up a little bit in the media. He kind of constantly you know, cracked under pressure a little bit, but that wasn't him. You know, he didn't he didn't want all that attention. So I was I was shocked to 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 see that there just wasn't that many people there. To, no. I mean, even if you didn't like the guy, I mean, even if I hated the guy, I would want to be there to witness history. Yeah. And and there was a five thousand dollar bounty on the ball. Who if if he did hit it. Whoever caught it would, would get $5,000. Um, now that ball would be worth millions. What did yeah. they pay for Barry Bonds' uh, 71st home run or whatever it was? And, um, yeah, and it was, uh, everybody was in right field. Then in the plane of Red Sox, I mean, the pennant is clinched. But still, you're, you're seeing a guy with a chance to break the greatest record in the history of sports, which was this, the, the 60 home runs. But the asterisk that Ford Frick put on it, um, you know, that it wouldn't count because there was, there was uh, eight extra games, there'd be an asterisk next to it, may have also hurt. But there was a big um, reticence of coming out to the ballpark, and I still don't understand it. I mean, everybody yeah. was in right field for the five grand. There was nobody else in that cavernous, huge ballpark. Shows you where people's heads are at in terms yeah. of their greed. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I, I am curious about this because every time I watch a baseball movie, I'm always curious as to how athletic the actors are <clears> that play <laughs> the characters. And Barry Pepper played Roger Maris. Thomas Jane played Mickey Mantle. And I'm just they did a, a terrific job and they really had great chemistry on camera. But I'm just curious, did were they actually good at baseball? Barry was. Barry uh, Barry's a great athlete. Um, and he he just could do anything. Um, and he really, uh, was able to recreate Maris's swing, um, besides his temperament and his, his acting is extraordinary. Um, but 
physically, he was a he was a ball player. Tom, who had the mantle charis- charisma down pat, just he is that guy. He's a phenomenal actor too. I and I loved I loved helping him be Mickey, because um, I could talk to him like Mickey, and give him directions. You know, I could sound like Mickey to him when he'd say to me, "How would he say that?" And I said, "It's say like this. You just hey, get out of my way, you little son of a bitch." That's what Mantle <laughs> would. So I was able to do that. So when he's finally cast, I, I uh, you know, I he told me that he could play, that he, yeah, I had played all the time. He, we go out to this little league, little league field in Encino to work with Reggie Smith, who was a great switch hitting Dodger, Red Sox, Cardinal. Um, who had played against Roger and Mickey actually. And he was going to be my technical advisor on the film. And so he was going to teach him Mantle's swing from both sides of the plate. So we get out there and, and Tom's got hair down to his shoulders like this. He's barefoot, which he is all the time. And first thing he says to Reggie when they meet, he goes, all right, so let me ask you something. How do you hold a ball? And I oh, went, oh no, no. <laughs> no. And he never played. He, and then Reggie said to me, give me two weeks and then, um, then come out, I'll call you. after. T- let me have this guy for two weeks. So I was just so worried. So two weeks later, I, I, I pull up to this little place on Havenhurst Boulevard in Encino. Drive back to where Reggie has his, uh, his clinic and his, uh, his batting cages. And out in the outfield, I see Tom. But now he's... he's He's got like baseball pants on and shoes, thank God. Um, and he's shagging flies. And Reggie goes, whistles, which I can't do. And he yells, <laughs> Mickey, Mickey. Tom comes running in with a little bit of a limp, comes right up to me and goes, hey, how are you doing, you son of a bitch? Good to see you. <laughs> and, and then he gets in the cage and he's hitting from both sides of the plate. And it's like Mickey's swing, the little give at the knee when he would swing too hard and he's hitting the ball 300 feet and it was really thrilling i mean tom had a really really become a baseball player he had to become mickey mantle uh in a couple of weeks and he did it and uh both of them were were gifts to us because you know when you get two guys and you want to be accurate especially you know for in reverence to these to these two iconic New York players. It has to be real. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it. And I said, oh, where are we going to find this guy? And then uh, I was in Florida uh, making Analyze This. So Saving Private Ryan opened. So um, I wanted to see the movie really badly. My uncle had been at D-Day. I wanted to see what, what that was, how Spielberg had envisioned it. And Barry Pepper's in the movie. I'd never seen him before. And there he is, and I, I went, oh my God, Roger Maris lives. Look at this guy. Look at this guy. <laughs> he really did look like him. Oh man, and and he had, he he had this natural um, edge to him that was so Roger, and um, he just seized on him, and and um, they both were they were blessings. They were just amazing in the movie. Yeah, and it really ch- takes a true fan to to realize that as someone who directed the movie, because you know that there are going to be fans out there watching the film that are going to be super critical of these 
larger than life characters that they grew up loving and supporting. So I, I think only someone that really actually knew the guy, but also was a fan of watching these players growing up could really get them to that place. Well, we, so getting back to Rusty Smith, who was one of our MVPs on the shoot as production designer. So we have this enormous stadium and what was perfect about it. And, and I think faded about it was it was an old style three deck stadium um, that uh, really resembled Yankee stadium more than any ballpark. And we couldn't shoot in the new one just because it didn't look the same. And all the signage, you know, how do you explain um, Jimmy Dean's pork sausage to somebody? How did, they didn't have Keith Olbermann on ESPN radio. Those are the signs. So we took all, we were able to take all the signage off. And then Rusty rebuilt the amazing Yankee Stadium within Tiger Stadium, right down to the fact where the, the seats were plastic now in Tiger Stadium. So he built these slip covers that looked like wooden slatted baseball seats of the era. And we, so we, 55,000 seats had these slip covers on. And we painted the, the, the stadium the appropriate color. And then when we had to return it to Tiger Stadium, because the Yankees played there, Maris hits his 53rd and 58th home run there. Then we had to power wash <laughs> all, the, all the paint off and turn it back into into Tiger Stadium. I mean, it was an enormous job. So the day before we're going to start shooting the baseball stuff, uh, it was a Sunday. We're going to start shooting on Monday. And I told Reggie, I want to, I want to run a practice. Like a, just run a practice like you would if you were, you know, managing the Dodgers. Run the practice and um, let the guys have some fun. Uh, and then we'll start shooting tomorrow. And we had, you know, we knew what we were going to be shooting. So I said, I want to start around three o'clock, four o'clock, and then we'll have a, we'll have like a dinner and afterwards. He said, it's great. So at four o'clock, I'm going to sound so reverential, but I really started to cry. The original uniforms that we had, there they are. The, the, the Yankees of my, of my youth, my favorite Yankee team on the field, and these big mashed potato cotton candy clouds that Michigan has sitting over the ballpark and the light starts to come through all of these archways in the stadium. Really, I mean, it really was a cathedral. And <clears throat> we had invited Yogi Berra to come. And Yogi comes as a surprise to the guys. And also Mickey's widow, Merlin, and her two sons, uh, David and Danny. And they show up at the practice while the guys are out on the field taking batting practice, taking infield practice, doing interviews for HBO, um, just for background and stuff. And the monuments, the famous monuments, which are on the field, which everybody thought, oh, these three guys are buried out there. Mm -hmm. Um, They're out there. I mean, it was so beautiful. And Yogi comes in and he looks at the, oh, my God, look what you did. (laughs) <laughs> Look what you did. He goes, the monuments is in the wrong place. They should be over about 10 feet to the right. <laughs> it was more right center than dead center. And you know, I put one up on the roof here. I mean, it was, it was like so great. And then, and then comes Merlin and the two boys. Out in center field is Tom uh, in full uniform, number seven on the back. 
shock of blonde hair coming out of the back of his baseball hat, doing an interview, and Roger standing right beside him, number nine. And she just went, oh, my God. Mm. And she had to walk away. It was so powerful to her that it was so, it looked so real and so right. And that was, you know, that was a gift that I got a chance to, to make that movie and to have those moments with those people. That's incredible. I love that. I mean, yeah, that's it why was so I mean, amazing. Just listening to you. I mean, like it's just, it's just reaffirming why I love baseball. It's just this, the cathedral you talk about just the, that I, I was, I almost, I was almost there with you just now, just, you know, watching that scene. I, I can't imagine what that was like for you. Oh, it was just so great because you suddenly become eight years old again and you're walking into original Yankee stadium again for that first time coming through that dark tunnel. And then suddenly there's this, you know, we had a black and white TV. So suddenly it's in color and, and there they are. And, and it's this, it's all of that. It's all of that, you know, the, the, the pretzels, the beer smell, the, the hot dogs, the sound of batting practice, um, the fans coming in, the sense of excitement, the sense of something great could happen. Because um, that's a drama, you know. You know, if you go to a Broadway play, you know, you're going to see the same thing they saw at the matinee in the show last night. Baseball, any sport, you don't know what you're going to get. And that's what I love about it the most. You touched on it earlier about the asterisk next to the record and had been up there for a few years. And then I believe in the nineties, they removed it. Um, and that was a huge controversy at the time because Babe Ruth had hit his 60 home runs in 154 games. Right. And Maris did it uh, on the last game at 162. And I, th I thought it was an interesting decision to start the movie with, Mark McGuire passing Roger Maris in 1998. And that was another historic home run race between him and Sammy Sosa. Yeah. And that has a lot of controversy attached to it as well, but for different reasons. And then years later, uh, a couple years later, Barry Bonds breaks both of their records. I'm wondering how you feel about the, the, the controversy that surrounded 61 as it compares to the controversies surrounding the other records. Of course, I'm talking about the steroid era and the, um, the accusations and uh, that, that those players were taking steroids and obviously major league baseball had to, you know, clamp down on that and, and really come down hard on these guys for, for using. And I'm just curious what you, what you make of the controversy. Is it, is it comparable or does it not compare? Well, the, the, I don't think it's comparable, but as far as the, as far as this, the controversy with Roger was he did it in eight extra games. That was it. The controversy with uh, Bonds and McGuire and Sammy was they did it juiced. Um, they did it, you know, um, illegally, basically. Um, that's the controversy. Uh, the thing about it is you still got to hit it. You still got to do it. Um, but the wear and tear... Uh, on their body and, and um, was maybe minimalized because of the strength that, that they had, the size they had, um, uh, the heightened quickness of the bat. Um, you know, I remember once, I think McGuire ended up with a handle in his hand and the ball still went 500 feet. You know, it was, you know, it was ungodly. 
of what happened. So I, I don't know if that if there, the controversy is uh, is is comparable. Did you have that thought though when when making the movie of 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 putting Mark McGuire at the beginning and then also at the end? Or well, yeah, I, when I, the script didn't have that, I, I put that in. I thought, well, who's been there to see the whole uh, whole thing intimately? And that was Pat Maris, um, Roger's widow. Um, so that I thought I'd place it in in her bookended in her. Uh, in her eyes as she remembers that season. So it starts with her <clears throat> knowing that McGuire is going to probably break the record or tie the record at least that weekend. And she has a, a heart uh, flutter uh, on the way to the ballpark and never makes it. And then, um, you know, and then the, the bittersweet thing was once, once it came out, uh, about Maguire, he's the tag of the movie. The press conference where he cries, saying, um, "I went over to Roger's kids and and I and I touched and I'm, he's got the bat and I'm touching the bat, the bat that he hit, and um, I'm damn proud of that or something." And he's crying, and I, I used to think, "Is that what is he? Is he crying about that, or is he crying that he know that he cheated?" I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Hmm. Yeah, because I, watching the film, I was struck by just the outrage that was occurring between the sports writers and the baseball commissioner about putting this asterisk on the record, and it, it was almost like they were <clears throat> responding to the outrage of the of of the fans that just didn't want Babe Ruth's record to be tarnished in any way. Do you do you feel like looking back on it that that outrage just kind of wasn't really warranted? How did you feel about it? I didn't feel it was warranted at all. Um, you know, Roger stumbled several times in the press. He was a surly guy. He wasn't, you know, and that's really when the fans really appreciated Mantle. You know, he used to get booed a lot because he never lived up to what they thought he could live up to. He had this super, you know, body and somebody kept breaking down. He was 4F. He didn't go into the army. Um, because of bad knees. And, you know, we would know later that perhaps his lifestyle and his drinking problem kept him from uh, being who he could be. I, when I would speak to him, he always had regrets that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't the player he, he wanted to be um, and could have been. He had regrets, and regrets are a tough thing to live with. So I never really quite understood it. Um, and tried to make some sense of it with the movie. He just kept getting in his own way. Do you think that the records now should have asterisks next to them? Because of the steroid era? Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I think it is, <laughs> to quote um, a moron, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can't believe that quote is so well known. I know exactly who you're talking about. Mm. Um. So I wanted to give you an opportunity just briefly before we get to uh, a fun little portion of the show that I wanted to get your thoughts on. But you mentioned the late Whitey Ford just recently passed away. Yeah, He was the second oldest living Hall of Famer uh, behind Tommy Lasorda, Yankees all-time win leader, six-time world champion, 
um, he was the ace of the staff when you were growing up. Um, what what did you what are your thoughts on him and 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 his uh, and his passing and the legacy that he left behind? I was very sad. Uh, this happened a couple of days ago, and then um, the day that you and I are doing this, the great Joe Morgan died. Mm. Um, who I really admired. Um, anyone in the under five seven club uh, who could play <laughs> like him, I got. I, 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 he was an awesome second player, baseman and I got, too. And I got to know him. Yeah, but a, a really lovely guy and a great announcer. Uh, Whitey Ford was for so long to me the best clutch pitcher in baseball, best control. Um, the guy you wanted on the mound in a clutch game, you know, of course it was Gibson and, and for the spectacular five years, it was Koufax, but over length of a career, there was nobody like Whitey. Um, even when we would play stickball and we'd play, we, you know, you'd use a name or something. And, um, even with my brothers who were good and they go, all right, who's pitching? And I go, uh, I'm Whitey. And I go, Oh, geez. <laughs> even then, um, he would beat you. Um, he was a. All you had to do was say his name. Yeah, and I was, you know, I got to know Whitey very well, um, and uh, I spent a little time with him about five, six years ago at the Hall of Fame um, when Joe Torre uh, went in, and and Whitey was there, and he loved the movie, and um, loved how uh, I portrayed Mickey, and um, and was used to send me, you know, messages. Um, is Mickey okay? How's Mickey doing? I'm glad you're friends, stuff like that. Uh, he was an awesome figure in, in sports. And for me, you know, I was at Mantle's funeral in Dallas. And the night before, uh, uh, I helped Bob Costas uh, write his eulogy, which he delivered the next day. And I was sitting there. And there's my team. There they all are. Bobby Richardson, um, uh, who was a, a minister. But all the remaining guys on the team were there. And it felt right that I be there. And I was interviewed and, and um, someone said to me, how do you feel? And I said, well, you know what? I'm 48 years old. And I think that my childhood just ended. Mm. And, and I felt that with Whitey. Uh, you know, I was so blessed to, um, because of what I do and, and, and what I've been able to um, accomplish, that I ended up being friends with these guys. And it's, I always used to pinch myself when I'd, I'd be at a dinner with Yogi or he'd call me up on the phone and say, happy birthday, kid. Um, I was so blessed and, and Whitey was, uh, was an extraordinary guy and a, and a very charismatic, um, man at the same time, but such a symbol of my growing up that those things, you know, when you start losing those pieces of you, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a sad, it's a sad feeling. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can lift your spirits with this next segment. Um, I wanted to discuss with you 
your favorite baseball movies of all time, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, so I could go first if you'd like, but I have about five of my, not not necessarily all time, what you think is the best baseball movie, but your five favorite ones. Um, would you would you like to go first, or would you like me to go first? You go first, and I'll just say, okay, I'll agree or disagree. Okay, good. That's, that's a good way to do it. Um, so... Um, I put 61 on this list because uh, I, I'm here. I, I, yes, you're here. <laughs> and I, I knew I was going to be talking to you and I wanted to make you feel comfortable. And <laughs> hopefully that helps. No, I really did. I really did love that movie because of what you said about how it's not just about baseball. And I actually watched it uh, with my girlfriend a few nights ago. And, you know, she, she likes baseball, but not like I do. And she was absolutely just like in, invested, asking me questions throughout and wanting yeah, to know more. So it kind of, it, it plays for, for anybody. So I put that in there. Um, the fourth one that I have there is The Natural. Yes. Uh, for obvious reasons, Robert Redford, just a classic. Um, the third one I have in there is A League of Their Own, um, just in terms of uh, rewatchable. Uh, it's just so, it's just so fun. And I think mm-hmm. towards the end, you're, I, I always find myself hoping for a different outcome, uh, and thinking mm-hmm. that maybe, maybe the, the peaches are going to win. Um, but they never do. So, uh, and then it's got, you know, um, there's no crying in baseball. One of the best lines ever. Right. Um, and then my top two, number two is major league. Um, right. just for me, the most quotable film that I've ever watched. And it's just, it's just hysterical. I, I don't really count the other two, the second and the third one, but majorly the original is my, is my second favorite. And then my favorite of all time is little big league. And one of the reasons is because I thought growing up that I too could manage the Minnesota twins. And I thought that I could manage any team. Cause I thought I was, you know, the smartest baseball mind that ever lived. And I saw myself in Billy Haywood a lot. And of course, just as a baseball movie, if you watch it from like a, a perspective of, because Andy Scheinman directed it. And yeah. It. And our he, mutual friend. Exactly. He followed the way a baseball season goes to a T. Everything that goes on during the, during a regular season at that time was portrayed in that film. And so right. I just thought just accurately, it was just really great. And also had some really, really great lines in it. So th- that's my list. Okay. Um, I like uh, Bull Durham. Um, I agree on some of the, uh, the natural. Uh, it's a beautiful movie. Um, Eight Men Out. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Sox scandal. Yeah, and so the baseball and everything. The look of that movie and the story is 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 great. Um, uh, Sandlot. Um, uh, and there's a, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it's terrible. So De Niro's going to hate me. Um, <laughs> uh, he plays a catcher who's sick. Oh God. It's shot in the old Yankee stadium. It's really good. Bang the drum slowly. is also a very good baseball movie. Okay. What was your, what would be your, like your all time favorite? Number one. Well, I, I'm a sucker for Pride of the Yankees, also <laughs> uh, Lou Gehrig, and and there's some that that just shouldn't, you know, Babe, the Babe Ruth story with William Bendix as Babe Ruth is no. Um, <laughs> oh man, second base looks two miles away, and uh, that stuff. 
but um, I would say that, you know, if for a great story and a great ending and the great, one of the great scores, um, the natural, I would say. Oh yeah. I think, I think you can't go wrong with that. I don't yeah. think anybody would argue with you. Yeah. I love Field of Dreams, but, you know, there's stuff wrong with it. So, I mean, there's some stuff wrong with everything. Yeah, I mean, the shoeless Joe Jackson yep. was a left-handed batter. He wasn't right-handed. He didn't have eyeliner on all the time. <laughs> maybe if, Reg, maybe if uh, Reggie Smith had worked with Ray Liotta, he could have figured out how to make him a left-handed batter. Well, they batter. also could have just flipped the film and had him in the, you know, had him in the left <laughs> side of the box. Um, we did that with, with Anthony Michael Hall played Whitey Ford in 61 and we flipped the film. He, he wore 61 on his back and we flipped it. So it was 16 and then he, the righty became the lefty. That's crazy. I didn't know yeah. that. Well, Billy, thank you so much for doing this. I, I hope you had a good time. Uh, and, uh, I, I did. Really... It was a pleasure to talk to you. And I, this is so funny. I have, I'm doing, doing a double header because right now I'm heading from you to uh, a rehearsal with your dad for a, a reunion of spinal tap of which I have uh, one line in. So yes. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask if you had any lines cuz you play a mime. Yeah, play mime, yeah. Mime is money. I have one line which is uh, mime is money. Don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't wait for that. But uh thank I you so much. I hope we can for... go to a game together where there's there's no cutouts and um just just be fun to 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 you know to sit with you and uh and and uh you know, anyone who loves a game as much as you do and I do, we should sit together sometime. I would, I would really appreciate that, and okay. and hopefully we can get to a point where we can actually be close enough to each other. Won't won't be weird. Okay. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. All right, Billy. Thanks so much. 